All right, Ephesians chapter 5, we're in verses 17 and 18 this morning. And to give a bit of context of where we've been, remember the whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And we studied the first three chapters where we learned about God's grace, the riches we have in Christ. And now in chapter 4, Paul begins saying, live like who you are. You've been given this lofty position in Christ. Now live in a way that's worthy of that position. And so Paul spent the last half of chapter 4 and the first half of chapter 5 addressing what worthy personal conduct looks like. He brought up behaviors we need to stop doing, explained how we need to let God change our thinking in those areas, and then how we need to put on the new conduct that Jesus exemplified and taught us to have in those areas. And then in verse 7 of chapter 5, Paul paused to remind us that because we're in Christ now, that means that we are children of light. We need to stop partnering with unbelievers and their unfruitful works of darkness, and instead we need to be wise with the opportunities God gives us to shine for Him. And so when we arrive here at verse 17, Paul's going to now, he's going to return to addressing our personal conduct. And when we see the topics that he's going to address next, he's going to talk about self-control and then married life and then family life and then work life, we can understand why Paul paused. Because if we are going to shine, our lives need to be radically different in these areas than they were before we got saved. If we're going to shine, we need to be different and look different. We need to shine the message to others that they don't need artificial substances to live life on a different level. You just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So chapter 5, verses 17, and the long journey this morning to verse 18. Wherefore, be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit." Paul says, wherefore? Wherefore? We'll back up to verses 15 and 16. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Paul says, because the days we live in are immoral and wicked, because we need to buy up, we need to redeem the opportunities God gives us to shine for Him, because we can't afford to get lazy with our conduct. In light of that, he says be not unwise. Paul is going to talk about the importance of self-control, and he starts off by saying we need to put off a life of reacting. The phrase there, be not unwise, literally means stop being mindless. Stop being mindless. The word here for unwise, it's stronger than the word fools up in verse 15. The word here means someone who acts without reflection or intelligence. Someone who acts rashly. Now, we've all probably done that at some point in our lives, and some of us make a habit of doing it more than others. There are times, and I know you could probably share this experience, where you have begun to spoke words, and even as the words are coming out of your mouth, you want to pull them back in. You reacted to something someone else said or something someone did, and boom, the words are already out there. I'm at the point now in our marriage where there are times I react and I say things, and almost right after I say it, I go, that was stupid, wasn't it? or that was horrible, I'm sorry, I should not have said that, that was wrong. Like, as as the words are still coming out of my mouth that are wrong, I'm formulating the next ones in my mind to apologize. 
We need to stop being mindless. We cannot keep reacting. We can't keep doing what we've always done or what everyone else does in these situations. We have to stop doing that. We need to put off a life of reacting, and instead, we need to start reflecting on what God wants before we act. Wherefore, stop being mindless, but instead, understanding what the will of the Lord is. We need to put off a life of reacting and put on a life of reflection. The word understanding here, it means to employ one's capacity to understand and thus arrive at an accurate comprehension of the situation. We have this uh, tree that's… We have these two bushes in our front yard, and they're nice, generally speaking, when they're trimmed and everything like that. But we've got this tree that all of a sudden decided to grow up right in the middle of the bush. And we were talking about last night, like, what should we do about this? And I'm like, well, I'll just take a saw and cut it off. And she's like, it's just going to get bigger. And I don't know how to handle it. So, you know, I've got to do some research and reflect and figure out what to do. If I just go out there and react, I'm going to make the problem worse. Maybe not the best illustration, but (laughs) the point is we need to use the understanding God's given us to ask the question, what does God want? Literally, that's what this phrase, what the will of the Lord is, it's actually as a question. It's almost like quotation marks in the original language. Stop being mindless, but instead be understanding by asking, what does the Lord want? What does God want in this situation? One of the biggest problems with the teaching of evolution, besides the faulty science, is that we are just animals. We're not unique. We're just like anyone else. We are not animals. We are not. We are unique members of God's creation. Human beings are unique in creation because we are created in the image of God. And we are created for the purpose of being in fellowship with and glorifying God. That means we have the capacity to do more than just act on instinct. Now, some of the instincts that we have are God-given, okay? This morning, I was, I was in the shower, and normally, Bev comes to the 11 o'clock service, so she's not up at that point in time. So, I was in the shower, and I moved the shower curtain aside, and boom, there's a person in front of me. And I reacted. My first thought was, whoa! <laughs> not that she's frightening. She's beautiful and wonderful, and I recognized immediately as my awesome, wonderful, beautiful wife, and I relaxed. But the first reaction was, whoa! And God puts those things in us, that fight or flight, the adrenal glands and all that stuff, so that the idea is, is that, oh, there's a car coming toward me, I should move. And it supplies the necessary bodily reaction that's required to get you moving in time to get out of the way. But there are many other instincts that we have that are framed by the habits we form, reactions that we have. If people were nasty to us, we developed habits of response designed to protect ourselves from that nastiness. If we learned that we could manipulate others into giving us something they initially didn't want to give us, we developed a habit of communication or behavior that was designed to get us what we want. These habits and instincts are not Christ-like and they are not God-given. Those must change. We must stop reacting to life's circumstances in these ways, and we must choose to start thinking about how to act before we act 
so that we can start acting in a way that pleases God. We have to put off a life of reaction and put on a life of reflection. What Paul is describing here is self-control. We need to put on self-control. And if we're going to put on self-control, that means we need to put off being under the control of other things. Look at verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul now here brings up the main issue he's trying to address, which is we need to put off intoxication. Stop being intoxicated. That's what the word drunk here, it means to become intoxicated with wine. Stop being intoxicated with wine. The English dictionary defines the word intoxicated as being under the influence of alcohol or other drugs. Now, while only wine is mentioned here by Paul, the New Testament tells us to avoid intoxication from any source. In fact, it's always referred to in a negative light with maybe one exception. And to find out what that is, you've got to read the book Song of Solomon. And I will, if you've read the Song of Solomon, then you know what I'm addressing. But generally speaking, that's not to be the way that we're to behave. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Of love. I always forget the second one. Power. There we go. Love of power and a sound mind. Oh, power of love and a sound mind. First one, I always forget. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And then the third one is what I'm kind of getting at this morning, a sound mind. The phrase sound mind means a, literally a self-controlled mind. When we got saved and we were placed in Christ, God removed the darkness in our understanding. In Ephesians chapter 4, we studied in verse 18 where it mentions, Paul says in verse 17, I testify to you in the Lord that you need to stop walking like the other Gentiles walk, like the unbelievers walk, in the vanity of their mind. And he explains why do they walk in the emptiness, the futility of their mind? It's because they have their understanding darkened. Their seat of moral reflection is darkened. They can't see the light because there's something blocking it. Light's there, but they can't see it. Well, when we were saved, when we got saved and were placed in Christ, God removed that darkness in our understanding. We were given access to the supernatural life of God in order that we might control our thoughts and see things correctly. We are not slaves to sin anymore. And so the question needs to be asked, if we've been set free in our thoughts and our mind that we can reflect and say, what does God want in this situation? Why, if that's true that we can do that, why would we ever want to place our thoughts under the control of another person or another substance that would bring us into darkness again? The answer, of course, is we wouldn't. We've been set free. Now, because this is such a delicate thing, this is why while the Bible doesn't strictly forbid alcoholic use, it is full of warnings against using alcohol. Turn to Proverbs 23 with me, and you might want to keep your finger in Proverbs because I'm going to share quite a few verses from this book. But Proverbs 23 has some interesting things to say. Solomon speaking to his son, giving him advice, wisdom, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore wisdom for us. He says in Proverbs 23, verses 19 through 21, Hear thou, which means listen up, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. 
In other words, this is a topic that it will be tempting to go, I've got my own ideas on this. I don't need to listen to any advice. Let's not do that. Solomon says, listen up. Hear thou, my son, be wise and guide your heart in the way. That sounds very similar to what Paul is saying right before he talks about drunkenness. And then he says this, verse 20, do not be among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. He says, listen, he says, you don't go hanging out with people that are drinking wine. And he says, and don't be among the revelers who are having these parties where they just eat a bunch of meat. Now, he's not describing man up here. Um, <laughs> we do not, we're not riotous eaters of flesh, we're just eaters of flesh at man up. But the idea here is don't even go around that type of stuff where the revels and the partying and the, the drinking is going on. Because the, the folks that are involved in that, that leads to poverty and it drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Again, very similar language to the words that Paul uses. Be wise. Understand what the will of God is. Don't be drunk with wine. Go down to verse 29 of Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has babbling? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Now, he's obviously talking about someone who has an, a substance abuse problem here, but then he says this in verse 31, here's the warning. Who has that? Well, someone who is under the control of another substance. Therefore you, he says, do not look upon the wine when it's red, when it gives his color in his cup and when it moves itself aright. I know you might look at it and go, man, that looks yummy. I know you might see it there, and it might look attractive, and the phrase, when it moves right, it means it goes down smooth. He goes, don't find yourself in that place, because at the last, it bites like a serpent, and it stings like an adder. We were in the office today, and all of a sudden, I see a bunch of people kind of chit-chatting just outside my office, and I'm like, what's going on? And then somebody says, well, you got a little visitor in your office. I don't think he has an appointment. And it was a little tiny snake, all right? Now, the little guy, and not really that harmless, but nobody's like, oh, that looks awesome. The idea is we're going to get him to a place he belongs, because he doesn't belong here. This is the idea there. Might look nice, might look attractive, but you fool with it and it bites, stings. Your eyes shall behold strange women, your heart shall utter perverse things. Yes, you shall be as he that lies down in the middle of the sea, or as he that lies upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shall you say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Isaiah 5, 21 and 22, Isaiah says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. He says, it's a dangerous thought. You think I can handle this, that I'm strong enough to handle this, that are wise in your own eyes. You don't listen to the warnings of Scripture. Again, very similar language to Paul. He talks about wisdom and understanding. And he says, stop being drunk. You can't get drunk if you're nowhere near it. 
In Proverbs 20, verse 1, it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, some might say, what about all the verses in the Bible that talk about wine being a sign of God's blessing? What about the fact Jesus drank wine? That's true. There are verses where the Lord talks about how when things are good, your wine vats will be full and all that kind of stuff. Jesus, of course, he was at the wedding in Cana. doesn't say that he drank wine, but the the obvious indication is he probably did. And of course, the Last Supper. So what about that? Well, it's interesting, while discussing the greatness of God and all that He does for us, Psalm 104.15 mentions wine, one of the great things that God does. In Psalm 104, verse 15, He says this, He does all these great things for us, and then He also does this great thing. It says He gives us wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make the face to shine, or literally, wine that makes glad the heart of man and his face to shine like oil. These two phrases, to make the heart glad and his face to shine like oil, they both refer to the concept of like a a celebration, the idea of a special occasion. Every time you're going to see this idea of wine being a blessing or those in the Scripture using it, it refers to special occasions, celebrations. That's the context of how God's speaking of it, of being a sign of His blessing. Every time we see it's used in the Old Testament or God speaks of it that way, it refers to special occasions of celebration, either in worship or in your personal life. Not everyday use. When we look at the New Testament, there are the old, those are the only times we see Jesus involved with wine. The wedding of Cana, the Last Supper a religious feast, and a celebration. And with the exception of Timothy's stomach issues, it's never spoken of in a positive way when it concerns a person's regular or everyday consumption. So while the Bible doesn't strictly forbid alcoholic consumption, it gives serious warnings about using it, and it says you are unwise if you use it with regularity. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Two interesting studies came out this year. A study published in the March issue of the journal Nature said this, and I quote, just one pint of beer or an average glass of wine a day may begin to shrink the overall volume of the brain, and the damage worsens as the number of daily drinks rises. The report found that people who drank a pint of beer or a six-ounce glass of wine a day in the last month had brains that appeared two years older than others in the test who had not. Those who drank just 50% more than that added three and a half years to the ages of their brains. One researcher said, it is not linear. It's just the percentage just gets higher and higher the more you drink. The article went on to say that doctors used to believe that moderate amounts of alcohol could provide a health benefit, especially to the heart and the brain, but recent research has called the assumption into question. The World Heart Federation recently published a policy brief that states that there is, quote, no level of alcohol consumption that is safe for health. None. According to a new global study released in July in the journal Lancet, it says, and I quote, no amount of alcohol is healthy if you are younger than 40. In other words, every indicator of when you use this stuff, it puts you at risk in some way. There's no benefit, and certainly no benefit that outweighs all the risks that are associated with it. They also added that women who have one drink a day increase their risk of breast cancer by 5% to 9% compared to those who abstain. This is a study over 40 years. 
There are good reasons that the Bible says regular alcoholic consumption, even if you don't get drunk, is unwise. It affects our bodies negatively, and it can bring our mind. This is what Paul's mostly addressing here. It can bring our mind under the influence of a different substance. And when our minds come under the control of alcohol, it affects how we behave. Paul says this, stop being drunk with wine, wherein is excess. The phrase in excess is all one word, and it means literally a life that has no saving qualities. Being drunk with wine, being intoxicated with wine, he says it leads to a life that has no influence. In other words, being under the control of a substance like wine leads to not being a light to the lost. It leads to a conduct that is unworthy of this awesome position we have been given in Christ. Guys, if we're going to influence the world around us for Christ, instead of partnering up with the unfruitful works of darkness, we need to put off intoxication. Because if you are intoxicated, if you have something else controlling how you're behaving or influencing how you're behaving, that doesn't reflect Christ. How in the world are we going to accomplish the goal of telling others, awake thou that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light? We won't. And thus, the wise words of King Solomon's mother give, I believe, similar wisdom for us. In Proverbs 31, most of the time we think about that, and of course, all the ladies start running, right? Proverbs 31, Pastor Rose teaching Proverbs 31, I need a vacation. But there are other parts of Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7, King Solomon's mother gives him advice that has nothing to do with finding a wife or the virtuous woman. She gives him advice regarding alcohol. She says to him in Proverbs 31, 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Strong drink is just the word the Bible uses for grain-based alcoholic beverages. Wine refers to the fruit-based alcoholic beverages. Both are in the same boat in Scripture. It's not for you, not for kings, not for princes, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of any of the afflicted. You have a job to do, King Solomon. You have a responsibility in front of you. You can't afford to be under the influence of something else when God's giving you the responsibility to give justice and to lead people to speak truth into their lives. So give strong drink instead to him that's ready to perish and wine unto those that are of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Now, I've actually heard pastors say and teach us and go, see, this is what wine is for. God gives it. You know, if you're down, you need to have something to cheer yourself up. That's not what mom is saying, right? That's not what mom's saying here to Solomon. Solomon, it's not for you. It's for depressed people. Solomon, it's not for you, but it's for, it's for people who are dying. What she's saying is, Solomon, you have a higher life. You have a different calling in front of you. You have the privileged position and call of God to lead people to shine for Him. Revelation 1.6 says that we are kings and priests unto our God. That's what Jesus has made us, kings and priests unto our God. This stuff is for 
those whose lives are not in that lofty spot. We don't want something else influencing us so that we live a life that has no influence, that has no saving qualities. Let others go the route of alcoholic beverages. We've been made kings. Let us go the route of this life on the higher level. And so, I ask you this morning, do you need to put off being under the influence of wine or any other substance for that matter? Do you need to put it off? Because there is no better day than this morning to heed Paul's command. God loves you. He has given you something so much better. He has made you a king and a priest unto him. He has a calling on your life. He has things for you to do. And as you do them, he wants you to execute them in a way where you're under his influence and not the influence of something else. He has given you something so much better, the influence of his spirit. Don't be drunk with wine or stop being intoxicated with wine wherein is a life that has no influence, no saving qualities, but instead be filled with the Spirit. The word but here is the strongest form of contrast in the Greek. Instead of being intoxicated with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, something important to point out. Paul is not comparing being intoxicated with wine to being filled with the Holy Spirit as if there are similarities between the two. That is not what's going on here. The words drunk and filled are entirely different words. The word for drunk here refers to something that's been drenched or soaked in something so that it can then be stretched beyond its natural limits. They would use this word to describe what they would do to the skin of an animal when they would take it and they would drench it in chemicals and materials so they could begin to stretch it and get more use out of it to create more things than one carcass could normally create. When we become intoxicated with something, our behavior stretches out in ways that cause us to exist in a way that is way outside the boundaries of what God made us to be, far less than what God designed us to be. Now, the word fulfilled, it's so opposite of that. It's so radically different than being stretched out of bounds. The word filled, it means to overflow or abound. It means to furnish something liberally. Like if you're going to buy a home and you're going to have everything necessary to make this room exactly as you want it, that's what filled means. You filled the room. It means to diffuse throughout. You see, in the case of being filled with the Spirit or this word filled, we're not stretched into something that makes us outside of what we were designed to be or less than what we were designed to be, but we are now something else infuses us completely, making us become all that we were designed to be, filling us. The difference is between a device that is being misused and ends up broken because it's not meant to do what you're using it for, and a device that is at the height of its function, at the height of its capacity. So please, don't let anyone tell you you need to be drunk in the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Respond to that by saying, listen, the Holy Spirit doesn't stretch me out and make me less like alcohol does. The Holy Spirit fills me so that I can be all God designed me to be. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit in contrast to being intoxicated with wine, being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't about being out of control and therefore out of bounds. That's what intoxication does. 
Being filled with the Holy Spirit is about being empowered to have self-control so I stay within God's boundaries. Now, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. This verb here, to be filled, it, it, you probably heard this before, but it means to con- be continually being filled. In other words, it's not a one-time event. Unlike the warnings against regular use of alcohol in the Bible, Paul commands us to make this filling a regular part of our lives. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? Well, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a phrase in the Bible that means being moment by moment empowered by the Holy Spirit. It describes a life yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit and that as a result bears his fruit. Galatians 5, through 25, we read it in our scripture reading. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control, and against such there is no law. In other words, there is nothing out there that can overrule the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. When we yield to the Holy Spirit and are thereby empowered by Him, nothing else can overrule His influence, not even my flesh. Isn't that awesome? And if we have the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's no amount of our flesh or no amount of the world that can overrule that, then we're going to shine for Jesus. We're going to have influence on the people around us. It says, they that are Christ, they have crucified the flesh with the affections and its lusts. So since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, your old life is dead. The darkness has been stripped away. You have the Holy Spirit. So since you have that, let's be in step with Him. Let's bend the knee to Him yield to Him, and thereby be empowered by Him. Now, in our context here in Ephesians 5.18, while Paul talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit could be referring to all the fruit of the Spirit, in context, he is referring to the fruit of self-control. There are many who describe being empowered by the Holy Spirit as being out of control, but that is not a biblical idea. I have heard at times people say, well, I don't even know what happened, just that the Holy Spirit got me. To which I would say, no, something got you, but it definitely wasn't the Holy Spirit because He doesn't work like that. He's the Holy Spirit. I had a friend of mine, and we were both very young, and so we both kind of messed up this encounter, but he came walking up to me. He came from a very charismatic church, and he came up to me, and he just goes, uh, Ilio Sunday, who stole my Hyundai? And start speaking in tongues. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, you know, I just lose control sometimes and start speaking in tongues. And I said, that's nonsense. I said, that is where I messed up. That's nonsense. I said, the Holy Spirit, the fruit is self-control, not out of control. Then we got in a fight. So we were 17. That is not a biblical idea though, that you just kind of out of control. When you look in the Scripture, people in the Bible who are filled with the Holy Spirit always exhibit a behavior that was self-controlled, not out of control. 
When you had the guy with the axe and he's, he's chopping wood and he's part of the school of the prophets and they're building a new school of ministry and whew, the axe head goes and it drops into the lake and he goes, ah, that thing was borrowed. It's like Elijah was like, zzz. Then, you know, the axe head comes floating up, floats over into the guy's hand, and he's like, wow, this is great. And Elijah's like, what just happened? That is not how the Holy Spirit works. Elijah knew what he was doing. He was acting in self-control, not out of control. And so, this is the part where we need to let God change our mind about the concept of control. You see, I, alcoholism was part of my, not my immediate family, but part of my extended family. And when I began the ministry, I had ministry to quite a few people who dealt with substance abuse, particularly alcohol abuse. And so the stuff to me, like, there's nothing attractive about it at all. Like, I, like, I don't see it out there and be like, hey... The only times it's ever been tempting to me is when I just want to get away. The only time the thought ever gets in my head is just because I just want to go away from where things are at. Those are moments that are very few and far between, and they're, they're been a really bad week. I realize that it's more tempting for others, but the point is, the reason that thought even enters my head is because I'm, I'm looking for some form of control. some form of control. Like right now, I completely feel like I'm being tossed around by life, and I don't like it. So I'm going to find something I can control, even if it puts me out of control. It's my choice to be out of control, though. It's funny how we think, isn't it? And that's the problem. The reason we turn to alcohol or other things is we have wrong ideas about control in our mind. We have wrong ideas about self-control. For example, true self-control isn't about taking the reins of your life. It's not about putting on your big boy or your big girl pants. It's not about concentrating harder or wanting something more. Because the truth is we don't have the resources within ourselves to accomplish what pleases God. So the idea of taking control is not self-control. Now, generally speaking, we tend to admire someone who takes control. We tend to aspire to be someone who takes control of their life. But true self-control, as the Bible defines it, is about bending the knee to the one who does have the resources to accomplish what is needed. If you've ever had a spouse who is living in such a way that is hurtful to you and they don't want to talk about it, or a child who's making poor decisions, or a family member or a friend who's making poor decisions, you know what it's like to feel out of control and helpless. Self-control is not about taking control of that situation. It's about bending in the knee to the one who does have the resources to reach that kid, to reach that friend, to reach your spouse. It's about bending the knee to what the Holy Spirit wants for me and wants me to do rather than setting out to take that situation or my entire life by the horns. 
True self-control is about receiving supernatural power from heaven that enables me to control my conduct as I set out in the direction God's Spirit sends me to go talk to that child that I don't know what to say to convince them to make better decisions, to act and live in front of my spouse in a way that I don't have the ability to change their mind or their behavior, but there is one who does. God's Spirit has sent us, first and foremost, out into the world to be lights to the world, right? To be different, to be like Jesus, to please God with our conduct. And when you and I yield to that, He empowers us to control ourselves so that we can accomplish those goals. That's the life Paul described in Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. Like, have you ever listed that on your application as like an asset? Like, what's going to make you think you can do this job better? Well, I'm crucified every day. Like you're up on a cross every day? Yeah, every day. Doesn't sound like you'd be very effective when you're nailed to a piece of wood every day. Like no one's coming to the crucified guy and saying, all right, here's the list for tomorrow, the honeydew. You got to take care of this, 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 and this, all right? Good. No one's doing that to a crucified man because a crucified man is stuck. He's useless. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not to death. It's to life. Nevertheless, I live. And then he explains how that works. Yet the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How does a crucified man get anything done? How does a man who's on a place, a device of torture, a device that causes death, how does he live? By trusting the one who lives through us. The one who can already get the job done, even though we can't. The one who gave us his spirit. That's properly understanding control and therefore properly understanding self-control. And so I ask you this morning as we close. Do you need to let God change your thinking on the topic of control, on the topic of self-control? Do you need to yield to the Holy Spirit this morning? Do you need to put on self-control? A self-controlled life that is on mission. It results in behavior that's radically different than intoxicated behavior. And we're going to start looking at that self-controlled life in the next three verses not this morning, but next week, because we're out of time. But my encouragement to you this morning is, is what needs to be put off? Where do you need to let God change your thinking? And what do you need to put on? Because if you fall into one or more of those categories this morning, then don't leave today without applying it to your life. Don't leave today without being a doer of the word. Don't just be a hearer. If there's something you need to put off, then today is the day to repent. Repent is a good word. Today is the day to leave it behind. If God kind of brought some light into your thinking about control and a life of self-control actually looks like, then make the commitment today saying, God, you shined a light in some areas of my heart today that I think maybe I've got some wrong ideas about this. Over the next few weeks, Lord, show me as I'm reading my Bible day by day, show me the correct way of understanding this concept of control and self-control. And then put it on. Amen? Let's all stand.
Lord, you know every person here. You, like, you know everything about us that no one knows about us, Lord. And so, Lord, you know this morning if there are any brothers or sisters here that are battling substance abuse, that are in the bondage of, of intoxication of some kind. And so, Lord, I pray that as you do in your word, you draw us with bands of loving kindness to that place of repentance. It says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, show that, that brother or sister, Lord, how good you are, how much you have for them, the different life that you have for them, how wonderful you love them, Lord, the great position and riches you've given them in Christ. Lord, that all of us might be drawn to that place that where we just lay whatever it is down at your feet and walk away from it that we make a decision to stop being under the control of other substances. Lord, let no one leave here today without knowing that what you have for them is better. Lord, I pray for the, the fact that I know the enemy is lying, saying you'll never change, you'll never be able to be different. This is a part of your life. You like it, you need it. Lord, all the things that the enemy does and he lies to us, Lord, I pray that you would shine light of the truth of your word. And we would see, all of us, that there's something far better you've laid in front of us. And then, Lord, as those prayers are going up to you even now, of surrender, of repentance, God, that you'd fill us with your Spirit. Lord, as we put on the Spirit-filled life, that you would fill us with your Spirit, fill us with self-control, that we would be a people who shine for you and other men see it and then they receive the gospel, that they glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.